D.L. Moody was a most famous evangelist at the end of the 19th century. You sort of think of him like uh, the Billy Graham of his era. Matter of fact, much of what Billy Graham incorporated into his public ministry, he drew from people like D.L. Moody. Someone once asked Moody how a particular night's evangelistic meeting had gone, and D.L. Moody said, we had two and a half conversions. Uh, so... The inquirer asked, do you mean two adults and one child? To which Moody replied, no, two children and one adult. The person looked at him a little perplexed, and Moody said, the children have their whole lives ahead of them. The adult's life is half over. And in pointing this out, Moody reminds us of the importance of the evangelization of children. In our culture, most people who become believers do so before the age of 20, many before the age of 15. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about this as in our parenting series in a message entitled, The Most Critical Lesson. Last week, as we talked about parenting in this series entitled, Biblical Principles for the, for the Right of a Lifetime, we spent our time on the subject of authority issues, training the conscience. And if you go to the main website, uh, the articles I told you would be there are up now as well as the uh, PowerPoint. We looked at the matter of discipline, the use of the law of God, the importance of teaching, communication, sharing the core principles in the midst of discipline. This week, I want to move fully to the other side of that equation, the very central and important topic of seeking to evangelize our children. There's no greater task or responsibility that we have as parents. While only the Spirit of God can ultimately open blind eyes, give the ability to really hear in the soul, Only the Holy Spirit can give new birth. We cannot. We do have a responsibility to engage our children with the means toward salvation taking place. God uses means, even though He is sovereign over salvation, He uses means in the lives of all people to bring them to repentance and faith, those that He's calling. And so in parenting, we cannot simply rely on the church in relationship to this matter, for we have a calling, as we said in the very first message, to disciple our children. And that discipleship finds its true initiation in conversion and the steps leading up to conversion. Now, in looking at parenting material over the years, and it may have changed somewhat, but over the years as I looked at it, very little parenting material seeks to incorporate evangelism in a specific way into the task a parenting. I guess it is just assumed that we will seek to evangelize our kids, or perhaps because we're in a culture that has relied on mass forms of evangelism, like Moody's approach, like our own approach as Southern Baptists through the years in revivalism and revival services, or like much of the megachurch movement today that basically is mass evangelism every week where the gospel is the central thing that's shared and it's basically all the time focusing on evangelism. Maybe that's part of the reason toward that. But we must understand that much of this must be done one-on-one, individual to individual, eyeball to eyeball. And it's necessary and imperative that we think about this in relationship to our task of witnessing and sharing with our children. Again, we cannot cause someone to be saved. We cannot be a person that gives them new birth, but we must be involved in that process, helping them take steps as we can toward the cross. And so today, I'm jumping a little bit ahead 
in the schedule of the messages I want to bring to you as I consider that we were baptizing a couple of uh, children today. And in light of some of the songs that we have today, I just kind of changed my trajectory and jumped ahead a bit in relationship to the series. I pray you'll be encouraged to draw upon what is shared as you work with your children in the uh, time ahead. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke to start, chapter 18, and the, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, as we look at Jesus here, encounters with children. Luke 18, it's very significant that we even find this in ancient literature, this type of, uh, of encounter of someone at Jesus' stature dealing with children here. But isn't it wonderful that he did? So in Luke 18, verse 15, the Bible says, People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 36 and 37, and then down in verse 42. The Scripture says, He took a little child whom He had placed among them. Taking the child in His arms, He said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in My name welcomes Me. And whoever welcomes Me does not welcome Me, but the one who sent Me. And then in the context of this, Skip on down to verse 42, where Jesus says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it will be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. I want to share four things with you this morning about this uh, most critical task in evangelizing, seeking to evangelize our children. First of all is the good news that we're reminded of in these texts is that children can be saved. They can have eternal life at a very young age as children, as Moody talked about, and um, you know, go through their life, hopefully, being faithful to the Lord. And when we read these texts in the Gospels recording Jesus' encounter with these children, we find here his approach is different than those around him in the culture. The disciples reflect the cultural view of his time. That is, children were to be seen, if anything, and not heard. That is, children were not seen to be ones that should bother somebody like Jesus. And so, we see two things, though, about Jesus here as he deals with these children. First of all, he said, do not prevent these children who wish to come to him. And he spoke of these little ones, he said, in the Gospel of Mark that we read, who believe in me. He said it would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea than to trip up one of these little ones, and he says, who believes in me. And the word Jesus uses there for believe is the same word that we find in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever trusts in him... Jesus here is alluding to children who have placed their trust in him, children that are saved. And so the good news is that children can be saved in childhood. In fact, most conversions still take place while people are young. There are many factors that tend to make it this way in our culture. But the point, too, 
here it seems that the Lord often begins to work with us when we're young. I remember in my own life, raised in a Christian home, church week in, week out. And I shared with you last week about the point of uh, stealing something and being convicted by the law that I'd stolen something. But as far as the conviction of needing to be saved, that happened to me beginning at eight years of age. I wasn't saved at eight. I wanted to respond. No one knew what to do or people I was looking to at that point in time. But it was in a service like this one where I, I felt that conviction at eight years of age. You know, in Christian history, there are many examples of people who were converted when they were young, who never doubted it, who never strayed, who never wavered in their commitment. So if you were to pick up your hymnal and look up the name Isaac Watts in your hymnal, you'll find several hymns that he wrote. And Isaac Watts received Christ as his Savior when he was nine years of age and went on to be a great servant of the church. Corey Ten Boom, who was one who suffered persecution and watched her family die at the hands of the Nazis for hiding Jews and then went on to travel with Billy Graham around the world for many years sharing her testimony. Corrie ten Boom was converted at five. James Dobson, Focus on the Family, some of you listen to. Uh, he is uh, older now. He doesn't have Focus on the Family anymore. He has another ministry. But uh, Dr. Dobson says he was converted at the age of four. His father was a Nazarene evangelist. And he says he remembers it vividly. He's never doubted it. That uh, he truly was converted at the age of four. That's very, very rare. But we see that he said it happened. And then there's a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was an early martyr in the life of the church in the second century. That is in the 100. Shortly after the uh, time of the New Testament was finished. Uh, less than 100 years after Jesus had died and risen from the dead. Polycarp probably became a Christian in 70 to 80 AD through the influence of the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John. And so he was a disciple of John. And Polycarp went on to be a leader in the life of the church. And he came down to the point of where he was going to be martyred because he would not deny Jesus. And he was martyred. And before they killed him, here's what Polycarp said. He said, 80 and 6 years have I served him. And so we see here that Polycarp had become a believer, obviously, when he was a child. If he's been serving Christ for 86 years. And so this should encourage us to begin working with our children in relationship to the gospel while they're young. Now it is important that we teach them the commandments, teach them the great stories of the Bible, teach them to pray. Uh, Jerry Joe reminded me last week when we went home about our family time that uh, my youngest Josiah in our family time in our basement on Oak Street in uh, Shepherdsville, Kentucky, we'd get down to pray. He'd climb up on our backs and uh, pray, and then uh, he wanted to get down on the floor on his face and get us all in the face praying to the Lord. A little child shall lead them. Great memories of those things, of teaching the Bible, praying, the commandments, memorizing Scripture. Those things are all extremely important. But we need to begin also explaining the gospel to them, putting the picture of the gospel before them, of how how this works, how this gift of God works, and how it can be applied to their life. That is central, because that is what ultimately is needed in their lives, and that is to be born again. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, or a person is born again, they cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
And so the good news is they can be saved. Even as we saw two children this morning who've recently been converted. Well, not one of them was a few years ago. And then they're following through with baptism. But then secondly, as we think about doing this with our children, seeking to influence them while they're young, we must make sure that we're sharing the gospel with them. Now the question is, what is the gospel? If you're telling me I need to be sharing the gospel with them, what is the gospel and what is not the gospel? Well, no one has to be a scholar to understand the gospel. The word gospel simply means good news. It is news that's been announced to us. It's good news that God puts on the shelf low down so we can all understand it. We can all receive it. It's accessible to us. As a matter of fact, Jesus speaks about the gospel in this term. He speaks of a right disposition of heart as the most important aspect of coming to him. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18 in verses 2 through 4? Remember he said this, he called the little child, placed the child among them and says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus here is saying the disposition of heart, of humility before him is the most important qualifier of a person being ready to be saved. But there also must be some level of understanding. There has to be some knowledge of why we need to be saved. And that's why our teaching comes into play. Now, the core of the gospel flows around certain key matters, certain stack poles, certain columns, certain foundations we could talk about. And let me just ask you to look to two passages, passages of Scripture with me to, uh, just to remind us of what those elements are. What is the gospel? Well, in Acts chapter 17, Paul goes to the ancient city of Athens, and these people were all pagans. The adults, the kids, they, they didn't understand anything. They hadn't been exposed to Christianity. He went into their city, and he says there's idols everywhere. And he says, these are things you're worshiping in ignorance, but now I come to proclaim to you the truth of the gospel. And in seeking to share with them the gospel, what does he start with? In uh, Acts chapter 17, in verse 22, he's speaking to the philosophers of the city. And it says in verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. You know, you can be very religious but you're not saved. Religion won't save you. The gospel will save you. Religion won't. Religion, you can be very, very faithful to religion, as many people are on this planet. But without Christ, you're going to die and go out into eternal separation from Him. And so it says here, he begins talking in verse 22 about them being religious. But he says, so you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And then, what does he say? He talks about God. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. That is, all these offerings you're bringing to him, all these sacrifices, he doesn't need those things. Rather, he himself gives everyone. He's the giver. He gives everyone life and breath and everything else, and that would include salvation. 
From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Here he's talking about the Creator. And then if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he talks further about the gospel. And he actually uses here the word gospel that he is proclaiming. We've already seen part of what he's proclaiming is that there's a creator. Then he puts together the picture of what the creator is doing, not only in providentially placing us where he wants us to be, but then sending the Savior to save us. So in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, verse 1, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the core. And that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born or born out of time. So here's we think about the gospel. Here are the elements we've talked about so far. One is creation. Our children need to understand that they're made in God's image. And we're made for an eternal relationship with him. That's God's desire. But then secondly, Paul said that Christ died for our what? Sins, according to the Scriptures. That we have sinned. This is not rocket science. It's just a plot line to follow. Created. Fallen into sin. And in our sin, we have broken our relationship with God. And we do not have the power to restore it. All have sinned. And come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And I have some other scriptures on the screen I'm not going to read. But I'll point you to some material that will help you. And there's, uh, you can read some of them there. You know, as he talked to our children about sin, you heard Evan mention the Good News Club that is an evangelistic ministry in the schools. And we talk about sin. The Good News Club definition of sin is this. Sin is anything you think, say, or do that displeases God. And our children need to begin to understand that sin is something not just outwardly in what we do, but it is tied up with, with who we are inside. Anything that you think, say, or do that displeases God. Third element is Christ. God chose to act to repair for us that relationship. It's something He had to do. He did all the work. And the work affected the very trinity of God. And that the eternal Son of God took on human flesh, it seems permanently, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus walked around on this planet, he was fully God, he was fully man. He did things only God can do. As far as miracles that he did, and he claimed to forgive sin. And Jesus was also fully human. But there was one difference between Jesus and us, and that where we sin, Jesus never sinned. He was tempted in every point like us, the Bible says, yet without sin. He lived an absolutely sinless life. He died in our place. That's why he came to this planet, to receive what we deserve. God must punish our sin. God took it in himself, and that God's wrath was poured out upon the Son, who willingly took it. 
was buried and on the third day he rose. And that's God saying, I accept this sacrifice. That's what Christ has done. And so God has done what it takes to repair our relationship with him to come back into his family. So we have creator, sin, Christ, just four points here, receive. Paul said in the book of Acts chapter 20 verse 21 as he's talking further about the completion of the gospel, he says, I preach all over the Roman Empire to both Jews and Gentiles this message, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. How the gift is applied to us is that we must receive it. Receiving it is admitting that we're sinners and being willing to say, Lord, I want to turn away from everything I know about sin right now, what I think, act, and do, and I'm willing for the rest of my life as you help me to begin to further and further turn away from sin and temptation as I submit to you. And then by faith, by trust, I trust what Jesus Christ did for me, what you, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit did for me. And I ask you to apply that to my life. I receive that gift into my life. I ask Christ to be my Savior for me. And the point is that when we trust Him, our sin has been punished. And Christ's righteous life of never having sinned is credited to us, counted for us. So the Father always sees me then as He sees His Son. That's the gift of eternal life. And the Spirit begins to give me power to live for God because He lives in me at that point. And so a way of summarizing it then would simply be this, that we are valuable yet broken, and God is gracious and will repair us forever, and has done what it takes if we'll receive Him into our life. You know, sometimes in direct teaching, at other times in informal discussions, we should be emphasizing this message. Just remember those four points in your mind, those four stack poles, and keep emphasizing them, teaching them to our children. Now, it is best that we do this in conjunction with the Word of God. That is, don't just repeat the elements of the gospel to them. Show them the elements of the gospel in the Scripture. Because the Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 10, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the what? Word of God. Take them to the Word. The Word has power. You remember in 2 Timothy, chapter 3, and verses 15 through 17, here we find in the Bible... Apparently, Timothy, who became a great leader in the life of the early church, was converted as a child, apparently. And the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, And how from infancy, from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And you recall that Paul says elsewhere to Timothy, You learned this from your mother and your grandmother. The mother and the grandmother laid the scriptures before Timothy as a child so that Timothy could become wise for salvation. They took time themselves to teach him. So if a mother and a grandmother can do this, all of us can do this. Your church wants to be an aid in this manner with you, but ultimately the joy should be yours in leading your children to come to know Christ. Now I'm going to say something here that I need you to listen to. And you may not like what I'm about to say. And that always bothers me a lot. But I think sometimes with our language and our practices, people sometimes think they are seeking to lead their children to salvation, but they are not 
because they're not teaching the gospel. We've just talked about what the gospel is. Now, I want to tell you for a moment now what the gospel is not. Looking at what we just covered in the Bible, Paul talks about this is the gospel by which you're saved. One thing you did not hear in any of that that we read is that salvation is asking Jesus into your heart. Not one time did you hear that salvation is asking Jesus into your heart. Unfortunately, I think sometimes we reduce salvation to that phrase. And we need to be very careful here. Because the gospel can become corrupted. It was corrupted for centuries in Catholicism, recovered by the Reformation that we're celebrating this year, the 500th anniversary of it by Martin Luther and the other Reformers. And we can lose it ourselves if we're not very careful in our cultural habits. I think if we reduce salvation, and we talk about it in those terms, in the minds of our children, and the way a child's mind works, it's very easy for them to think that that's salvation. That is, Jesus loves me, because you've told me my whole life Jesus loves me. And I love Jesus. I sing about Jesus. I memorize Jesus' passage in the Bible. And I love Jesus. And if I say a prayer and ask Jesus into my heart, I'm going to go to heaven. And I think sometimes children think that's what salvation is. Listen, I want you to hear this. If we reduce the gospel to that without explanation, without context, that is not the gospel. That can be just some formula to their young minds. Well, I I said the formula, and I got baptized. I'm on my way to heaven. And they haven't even interacted with the gospel. That's something akin to like the first declaration of a Muslim to Islam. Islam has five pillars. The first one is this, the shahada. And it says uh, basically that uh, you've got to declare this. You declare this. And you're on your way to heaven. You've got to keep doing everything else as a Muslim, but you've got to do this one if you're going to go to heaven. And basically, it's, there's no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger or prophet. Now, obviously, that is wrong and untrue and will not save anybody. But also, it's that same idea of, a, of salvation. I say something, I repeat it, I ask him in my heart, and then I... I do these things and I'm going to go to heaven. That is not the gospel. The gospel is about realizing that he made me, I've sinned, and I need a Savior who died for me, was buried and rose again, and I need to repent and place my trust in him. We must explain. Salvation is entering into a relationship with Jesus. Now, we can express that desire through prayer. I think that we should. But salvation is not found in saying a prayer. Salvation is found in repenting and trusting in Jesus. It is trusting in him alone to rescue me, to save me through this gift that he gives to me. You know, perhaps a healthier way of thinking about this with our children and teaching them would be this. And I'm not scolding you. It's easy to say, I'm, you know, myself, bringing kids on, ask Jesus in your heart.
not saying to kick that out of your language totally. I'm saying you've got to explain it. So as we think about this, another way perhaps we could teach them would be this. The healthier way of it in this way would be we're not asking Jesus into our heart. But we're asking for Jesus to save us and let us into his family by grace. That's what we're asking. It's not so much me asking him into my heart. It's asking him, Jesus, would you receive me, accept me into your family? Because I've trusted what you have done. That you will adopt me back into the family. I'm not in the family of God till I have met Jesus. Now, I think that would get us closer to really dealing with the gospel. Now, we have a lot of resources that we'll upload this week for explaining the gospel, some that I got from Pastor Evan. And there are also some wonderful resource people in our church who work with children. We're very blessed in our church that we do the Good News Club, which is an evangelistic ministry with children, and it focuses on making sure the gospel is clearly proclaimed and dealing with the children to make sure they're ready to receive Christ into their life. And so we have, um, if you're a Good News Club worker, would you just stand up around the room for a moment? If you work in Good News Club. Uh, there's several folks here. Yeah. And Kayleen kind of directs ours, and she can point you to some wonderful resources. Dawn Badger in our church used to be the whole area director for uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship. Brother Evan is helpful, though he has a bad haircut, but he's helpful. There are lots of resources that will, uh, you can take and utilize in seeking to share with your children the good news of the gospel. Now, if I hadn't made you too mad, let's go to point three. Third thing I want to say this morning is this. We must not um, pick unripe fruit. We must not try to pick unripe fruit. In seeking to evangelize our children, we must be careful that we're not seeking to make something happen that's not ready to take place. While Jesus did say to not prevent the children from coming to him, he did not say push them or drag them to me. Dr. Herschel York, who uh, Spoke at the Cove for us one year, pastors Buck Run Baptist in uh, Frankfort, Kentucky, teaches preaching at Southern Seminary. He said this recently. He said, don't ever pressure a child. Just teach and live the gospel and let the word and spirit do the work. Ripe fruit will fall from the tree in time. Isn't that true? If you think about when, a, when the apple's ready and it's ripe, it, it falls easily from the tree. You don't have to shake it or knock it off with something. When it's ready, it falls from the tree. And salvation is a process of children hearing the gospel, the Spirit working, the Lord bringing them to the point where they truly understand and they desire to place their trust in Jesus. You know, I think sometimes parents worry, and I think uh, they worry to the point that they think they've got to see their children converted as soon as possible. Otherwise, they might die and miss heaven. And over the years, I've had a number of uh, parents, you know, they, they drag their children into my office. They set an appointment to, let's talk about getting saved, and they, they're dragging them in the office. No! No! No, mama. 
So we sit down and we start to talk about what it means to be a Christian and try to deal with the issue of sin. And I say, you know, well, Tommy, tell me, tell me what you think sin is. And Tommy's sitting there like this. And mother says, now we, you know we talked about this. Sin is this. Right? And they start coaching them with me. And that tells me probably Tommy is not ready. And they're coaching them. Now, I understand that we're all concerned, but we need to remember a few things. First, while we were born with sinful natures, God does not impute guilt, the guilt of Adam or our own guilt in that sense, until there's a real cognizance of our sin. You know, a two-year-old might do something that we tell them not to do, but they have no sense of moral guilt about it. They're not responsible before God at that point. This seems to be confirmed in Scripture in a number of places in the Old Testament. If you go to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 1, they read in the Bible in Deuteronomy 1, in verse 39, as God's talking to them about going to the promised land. Deuteronomy 1.39, the Bible says, And the little ones that you said will be taken captive, your children, listen, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land I will give to them and they will take possession of it. Do you see that? There are children here. They're living, but they do not yet know good from bad. If you go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, you see this concept. Again, these are not the only places you find it. But in Isaiah 7, verse 15, the scripture says, he will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. You see that? When he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. You know, because of things that we find like this, and because of our understanding of the heart of God and the work of the gospel, most evangelical theologians believe that children who die before that point of being able to discern good from evil, to be responsible for their sin, they're considered God's elect. They're saved. If I can't find a digital copy of it, I will make a hard copy of it this week. Hopefully I can find a digital copy. But two of our seminary presidents, Dr. Moeller and Dr. Aiken, a few years ago, wrote an article on salvation of the little ones, why we believe children who die go to heaven, and I'll upload that for you. Millard Erickson, who is another uh, Baptist theologian, one of the most known theologians in our country, talks about this with children. He says, the current form of my understanding is as follows. We all were involved in Adam's sin and thus received both the corrupted nature that was his after the fall and the guilt and condemnation that attached to his sin. With this matter of guilt, however, just as with the imputation of Christ's righteousness, there must be some conscious and voluntary decision on our part. Until this is the case, there is only a conditional imputation of guilt, that is, guilt being attributed to us. Thus, there is no condemnation until one reaches the age of responsibility. If a child dies before becoming capable of making genuine moral decisions, the contingent imputation of Adamic sin does not become actual, that is, not actually counted against them. And the child will experience the same type of future existence with the Lord as will those who have reached the age of moral responsibility 
and had their sins forgiven as a result of accepting the offer of salvation based upon Christ's atoning death. You know, Catholics baptize infants because they think that the Adamic sin is attached to them and they think that that actually saves them. That's where you're regenerated in that theology. That is not biblical. But that is one of the reasons that they do that to deal with original sin and guilt. So that the child dies, that, that salvation in Catholic theology for, for babies, for children. We do parent-child dedication. We'll be doing that very soon. But we, that's simply a way for you as a parent to say we're going to seek to raise our children under the Lord and to share the gospel with them. It has nothing to do with the salvation of the child. They must receive it for themselves. And we're all anxious for that. But we must, must not pick unripe fruit because we're fearful. And we can rest in knowing that if they haven't really got this picture down yet about what sin is and their moral responsibility before God for it, then biblically I think they're okay. And so while there is not an age of accountability that is you know, across the board for all children, there is the truth that accountability does not come until there is a conscious understanding of sin and that varies with kids. I find very few preschoolers to even be ready to think about this. And I tend to think it happens when children are a bit farther along. And in our experience, when our children started coming to us, we put them off in trying to be sure. One of them, he kept coming and we, he prayed to receive Christ when he was eight. And then he came back at 12 and said, I, I don't think it took. Not in those terms, but... Uh, I don't think I really knew what I was doing. And then, um, but you know, one was converted to that age, and, and even with that, we took time with baptism. When a child really comes to know the Lord and you feel like they do, I think there's nothing wrong with giving some time before you baptize. The early church sometimes made you wait to a year, up to a year, to be baptized. We want people to be baptized pretty quickly in obedience to Christ. But I think with children, it's okay to slow that process down. Some churches, like First Dallas years ago under W.A. Criswell, didn't baptize children who were under nine years of age. I heard uh, one uh, church historian say one time, he didn't think we should baptize them until they hit puberty. Then we'll know if it's real. <laughs> right? With our youngest son, we waited for a year. He was converted in Kentucky. We waited for a year. And he wanted to be baptized here on Easter morning. And he was. And he's never doubted and wrestled with his salvation in that sense. So don't try to pick unripe fruit. You with me? And relax. God is sovereign. You be faithful. Sow the seed. Let it mature. Let it drop when the time is right. And finally... We must pray. Salvation is a process which God wants to be a part. And one of the reasons he saves us is so we can join in the mission with the Lord of advancing the good news. And this certainly begins with those closest to us in our homes. And one key matter is that we're to pray for them. The Apostle Paul prayed for his people, the Jews. He said this in Romans chapter 10 in verse 1. Paul said, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. He prayed for his people. Jesus prayed for us in the uh, night before he was crucified in John chapter 17. 
The Bible says in verse 20 that Jesus said, My prayer is not for them alone, that is, the disciples who were already with him. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. So he's praying for us who will believe and that he desires for us to spend eternity with him. We are taught by Jesus in our daily prayer framework to pray for thy kingdom to come. And the way the kingdom comes central is when people repent and believe. So we must pray. And we know that there is power in prayer. There's power in praying together. Jesus gives us these wonderful promises about prayer in John 14 as we wind this down for today. He says in verses 12 through 14, he says, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And this should encourage us to pray for our children's salvation and have hope and that God put us in our homes as believers and we're praying for them that we ought to have great hope. Keep praying. God loves to answer our prayers for his work in the lives of people. Sometimes in our family experience, we've seen God do very specific things in the lives of people hundreds of miles away. At the same time, they were being prayed for. We saw this happen with somebody in our family when a group of Ladies, my wife included, praying for someone in a particular state for the Lord to show them the emptiness and futility of their life. And at that same time, this person fell under a sense of conviction about that, pulled over on the side of the road because they were so shaken, hundreds of miles away. And later down the road, thank the Lord, that person gave their life to Jesus before they died. And so we must pray. Make sure that both you and your mate, if he or she is a believer, are praying in concert for the salvation of your children. List others to pray for the salvation. And know as well that the people in this church are praying for children to be saved from the time we know they are conceived. If I come and see you in the hospital and you've had a baby, I'm going to pray for your child's salvation. And I want that to be the model of our church, to begin praying. Pray for their eyes to be open, their hearts receptive, for God to grant them repentance and faith. And we'll see many children coming to know the Lord. It's an exciting time in our church. One, that we're having a lot of children. A lot of families coming to our church. A lot of babies being born. And we have a class that was just full of a new Christians class of children going through it, preparing for baptism. That's thrilling. And I want us to just commit in our homes to, just to have small children to seek to share the good news And we as a church to seek to pray and teach faithfully. And we'll watch that fruit mature, drop from the tree, and receive the gift of eternal life. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, I pray as we come today that you would just speak to hearts. If there are those in the room, adults or children or students who have not trusted you, that they would have heard the gospel today and that they would receive you to ask you to accept them into your family by placing their trust in Jesus to be forgiven and to receive the gift of eternal life. We pray for those in our church, for our children in particular right now, that are contemplating becoming believers. God, help their parents as they teach them. Those that come here who don't have parental influence at home, 
who may come with friends or through other means of getting here. We pray that, God, they would hear the gospel here, that we would see many repent and believe and give their lives to Jesus. We pray, Lord, you would add to this church, God, more folks that are seeking to lead and grow in their families. And, Lord, that together we can just become all that you would have us to be. And so we pray now as we sing this wonderful song of surrendering all, that you would have your way in hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.